you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. This is your host, Roger, back at you. And I love talking with operators that are moving quickly, working on really exciting brands. Now, this particular concept is called Daily Jam, and I'm speaking with Barrick Blackwell, the president. Daily Jam is a breakfast, lunch, brunch, and specialty cocktail concept that's growing quickly, and they also have a franchise model. So if you're interested in franchising, there's an opportunity for you to check out. We're going to talk all about core values. Now, Daily Jam has six core values that drives their brand forward. It's like a mission statement, but it's so much more than that. We're going to get into the depths of that. We're also going to talk about how to build a powerful brand, how to sustain that brand, how to sustain loyalty with your customers, the staff that are the foundation of your business and training them to become brand ambassadors for your business and all the best practices, including systems that you need in your restaurant. We're going to talk about the importance of taking inventory and how things change from week to week and prices are constantly changing. And if you're not taking inventory, it's like tearing up $100 bills in your walk-in. Take it from me, I know. So stay tuned. There's so much in this episode. I'm so psyched to bring it to you. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and these are engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, deliver amazing guest service experiences. Really excited today. I have Mr. Barrick Blackwell, and he is the president of Daily Jam. Now, this is a breakfast, lunch, brunch, and specialty cocktails concept. Welcome to the show, Barrick. How are you? For having me. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you so much. So you have a very interesting backstory. I always ask my guests, you know, how they first got into this industry. And your story includes some pretty illustrious brands, Krispy Kreme Donuts and Auntie Annie's Pretzels and the Cold Stone Creamery. I mean, these are nationally known. Some, some are internationally known brands. How did this all begin and how did you get your start? How old were you and what have you done in the business before Daily Jam? brands too to work for they're all uh, they're all sweet and, and indulgent so but i made it out alive but uh yeah so <clears throat> i started out actually uh working at kahala brands uh which is the master franchisor for uh cold stone creamery blimpy subs uh at the time they had about 13 other concepts uh regional brands <clears throat> um, and i was focused on the international side of things so I was doing uh, market evaluation for foreign markets, uh, new markets that we were evaluating. Um, and I was also splitting time in the finance department. I was a finance major, um, so I went to school for finance. I've always been a numbers guy. Um, and so I kind of bounced back and forth in between those two roles when I was at Kahala Brands um, and did uh, a lot of different things, but um, ended up bumping into our Cold Stone Creamery partners for Japan. And at the time, it wasn't a master franchise relationship. It was a joint venture. So uh, they were in our office quite a bit in Arizona and uh, literally grabbed the guy's arm, <clears throat> the guy that, uh, that ran our joint venture out there. And I said, I said, look, I, I'm, I'm interested in coming out there. And I've always been fascinated by the Japanese culture and really international business in general. Um, I, uh, I kind of just threw a Hail Mary and, and <laughs> see what he said. And he, uh, at the time, their company was very, 
very Japanese, not much foreign uh, foreign uh, involvement or foreign culture within that office. Uh, besides the fact that they had some American brands, and so uh, he he went for it, and I ended up moving out there for two years, and uh, it was an eye-opening experience. Uh, the Japanese culture is unlike any other. Um, the best food you'll find just about anywhere in the world. Um, but really what struck me when I was out there is I've, I've kind of grew, grown up around uh, restaurants and specifically franchising. My parents were involved in uh, in franchising. Uh, their entire careers uh, still are in some capacity. And so, um, but all, all in, you know, very kind of hyper-local Arizona involvement. And so being in Japan, uh, the one thing that I took away from there was their hospitality sector is just amazing. It's it's five star everywhere you go, um, and so I wanted to, to to obviously take that one piece away from Japan uh, and implement it in really anything else that I did in my life because it doesn't matter if you walk into a cafe or a five star restaurant, you are going to have top notch service. Uh, above and beyond experience and just good people, you know, friendly, nice, uh, and, and easy to talk to. So, uh, the, the brands I worked with in Japan were Krispy Kreme donuts, as you mentioned, Auntie Anne's pretzels, and then obviously Cold Stone. Um, and we ended up growing those brands, uh, by about 20 units. Uh, it was about 40% growth uh, during my two years. So really, really exciting times. Um, and then I decided to make it my move back to the U S and uh, I ended up consulting uh, for a few brands for about a year, um, specifically focused on the U.S. market uh, going into Asia. Um, so legacy concepts, which which Buffalo Wild Wings, to name a few. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and then you know during that time, I continued my relationship with the Japanese folks, and we uh, decided to. Uh, me working for them, obviously, in a group of investors, purchase what is now Daily Jam with the hopes of growing that into a household name. Let's get back to that word hospitality because it really drives our industry and it's really about passion and it's about the foundation of the business. And my definition of hospitality has always been hospitality is absent when something happens to the guest. Hospitality is present when something happens for the guest. Now, you talked in depth about you know the inspirations that you received from the Japanese culture and just the time you spent there. Would you say uh, that that hospitality definition goes above and beyond in Japan and what would their spin on that word be? And, and uh, you obviously brought those inspirations back in, in daily jam. We'll get into that, but can you elaborate a little bit more on, on that word hospitality and what the Japanese culture, how they relate to hospitality? Yeah, it seems to be there something that they grow up with. Um, and it's not necessarily something that's taught. Uh, where here, you know, there's a lot of emphasis put on training, philosophy, and manuals, and a lot of scripted uh, nice. relationships with the guests. Which, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, in Japan, it, in my experience, it was it was very similar in terms of the scripted nature. But uh, in general, the culture there, um, it's almost like there isn't another road to choose. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, where here. Um, for whatever reason, I think that uh, we get caught up in our own lives and, um, and 
individual situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I witnessed there was more uh, whatever it takes for the company. You know, they have this kind of uh, diehard loyalty uh, about them, and um, for for good and bad. But you know, in a lot of cases, it was for for the better and um, you know, whatever the company needed to be done, uh, that was the way that they would act and hold themselves to. So, um, so yeah, I, I thought, I think that it was definitely something that I, uh, I think, uh, the U S could learn a lot about. Um, I think again, it's partly training, but I think it's also, uh, just a way of life and finding the right people too. You know, there's, it's, it's more of a personality thing than it is, yeah. uh, something that can technically be, um, be trained. It's an honorable culture. So I think I'm Definitely. hearing that it's about honor and it's an innate thing that, you know, the Japanese people just grow up with and they apply that to their lives. That's what I'm hearing. And that's what I guess I believe. Yeah, no, that's, cool. that's completely correct. All right. So daily jam, right? It was called encounter prior. Tell us about it that. W- it was. So the original, uh, the original concept was called encounter. Uh, it was opened up by a husband-wife team, restaurant tours here in, in Arizona. Uh, they have one other breakfast restaurant here in the Valley. They opened it up uh, right on Mill Avenue, which is kind of our college drive for Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. Um, 3,000 square foot space, so a little bit smaller. It is fast casual, so you order at the counter, take a number, and sit down, and the food get, gets brought out to you. Um when we when we originally looked at the concept, the one thing that really stood out was um, the quality of the food for being fast casual. So when you sit down and the food's brought out, it's brought out on on real china, real silverware. You would you would actually think that it was full service if you if you just got your food brought to you. That's um, unique. Mm-hmm. It's very unique, especially for breakfast. You know, breakfast uh, there aren't a lot of people doing what we're doing in terms of fast casual. Um, I think there's, uh, there's pros and cons, but we've really found a niche in the way that we serve our customers, um, to be able to offer flexibility. Um, we give them a lot of different ways to order and they can order at the counter, they can order at the bar. Um, and, and so, so with that, you know, we looked at it, the name was really funky, right? It's, it's the letter N and then counter. And so when we looked at it, there was a lot of upside in the concept, uh, the menu was amazing. The ingredients, uh, the supply chain was was spectacular. The level of service and the way that the operations was flowing was was something that really caught our eye. But the brand itself wasn't something that we thought could could scale into new markets. Um, mm-hmm. There's no reference to to food, which not that there needs to be, but um, you don't really know what it is. If somebody says, Hey, meet me at encounter the amount of times that I was on the phone with somebody and they say, Oh, how do you spell it? Is it ENC? Uh, you know, it was causing a lot of problems from a marketing and a branding perspective. So was that meant to be a play on words as if it were an encounter, but yeah, it doesn't relate to the food at all. So I could clearly see that the brand needed a transformation. Yeah. So the original intent was I'm going to encounter my friends, uh, kind of a meeting place, a gathering, uh, a central hub, if you will. Um, and, and believe me, you know, it caught on, you know, right away within the first couple of years, it was a, it was the breakfast place in Tempe and it still is, uh, for sure. 
Um, but that was more because of the food and, and the, the way that our guests were having, uh, having their experiences than the name. So it sounds to me like you didn't fix what wasn't broken, but you did a brand transformation. Did you change the vibe or the ambiance or did, did pretty much everything stay the same? You just changed the name. Tell me what changed and what didn't. Yeah. So obviously big thing that changed was the name, uh, new signage, um, the interior of the restaurants primarily remained the same. We did a few touch-ups here and there, um, more branding elements in terms of, of design work and, um, and adding some pieces that were more uh, central to the core. Uh, previous to that, there were some farm am- animal references and some things like that. We wanted to kind of move away from that and be more modern, right? The rest of the restaurant, which I'll get into when maybe you'll ask about is, is very modern. You walk in exposed concrete, uh, a lot of metal, um, a lot of, uh, of natural elements. And so we just felt that the farmhouse theme really is kind of more in that, uh, that, that traditional breakfast space. And we want to be kind of new and progressive and that's who our customer is too. So, uh, we did those two things. Um, we simplified a couple things as we were going through the rebrand process um, in terms of, uh, the flow of the restaurants and, and making sure our guests know, uh, how the process works, but all in all, the menu stayed completely the same. And we made sure our guests knew that we have some extremely loyal customers that were, I'd say nervous when, when they saw that we were changing our name, they thought that the whole all thing right, was going right. to change. Yep. Uh, and that was a big hurdle for us that, uh, I think we ended up doing a really good job handling, but um, all in all, um, apart from a few design uh, updates, um, the concept remained the same. Progressive, and you kept the supply chain, you kept the quality standards, the menu stayed the same. You've got some unique menu items. You've got a PB&J smoothie, you've got pear yeah. omelets, you've got something called red velvet waffles, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the PB&J, so yeah, that's, uh, you know, when we talk about our menu, um, we like to think that we have... Uh, the change up down the middle, somebody walks in, they want a traditional breakfast. We obviously have that stuff and it still remains our top sellers, but we do have mm-hmm. some really creative dishes that get people excited. And the people that come to our restaurants three, four times a week, it gives them the opportunity to play around with different things and then try new things. Uh, the pear omelet, for example, is one that you look at a pear uh, on an omelet, it, at first you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's not, that's not for me, but you try it. And the combination of the pear, the bacon, the almonds and the brie is unreal. And so, you know, you have it for the first time and you're like, oh, this blew my mind. Right. Um, so we have a lot of those things that are, are mind blowing uh, for the guests when they first try it. The PB and J smoothie for me is I probably have it every other day because it's, it's one of those, those, uh, <laughs> yeah. those flavors that you just, you know, you crave, right, you know, right. growing up, you have a PB and J sandwich, of course. Is a more healthy option. And, um, so anyways, uh, the PB and J smoothie is definitely one of those, the red velvet waffles. Um, we were named best waffles in Arizona by food network, uh, for those specific waffles. Um, and, uh, Everything about our restaurant is Instagrammable, um, and so that's by intent, by by um, by decision, and so that goes to the plating, um, the way that the food's brought out. Uh, there's a lot of oohs and ahs uh, when those those the, that food hits the table, and uh, the waffles are just downright good. They're they're not uh, there's nothing flashy about them, but they are just uh, they're, they're downright good and. 
you know, one thing that we we do as well, specifically to our waffles is uh, they're gluten-free and we don't really advertise them as gluten-free. Um, but when customers ask, uh, you know, hey, what, what can I get that's gluten-free? And we say our waffles, well, this here, are they the, the same waffles that I just, just ate the other day? Because those were fantastic. And yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, that's the thing is, you know, <laughs> when, when Food Network did that, that, uh, that contest or that, you know, that, that study, uh, or not study, but that article, they, um, they didn't, they didn't know their waffles were gluten-free. They didn't even mention it in their article. So, um, pretty interesting stuff. And you know, I think it just goes to, uh, the way that, um, that, that we innovate and kind of create new things. And, um, a lot of that comes from our team, to be honest. So we, uh, we give our, our, our kitchens a lot of runway with, um, you know, what they're able to do and experiment with, uh, which is, which is a fun process, but. I want to make sure the audience gets gets the connection between you mentioning Instagram and social media and the wow factor, I call it, of the plate presentations. Because when you put something in front of the customer and you hear the oohs and ahs and they say, wow, look at this, then all of a sudden the camera phones come out and there is free marketing and brand building right there. And you can't, you know, you can't put a price on that. It's invaluable to any restaurant operation. And I think that, uh, like I said, almost all of our dishes uh, are, are are Instagrammable um, when they come out. Big portions, so like you know, it's, it, it is yeah. a wow factor. It's it's right. definitely that wow factor, and um, and you know, we do some other things, some promos that are really geared around uh, not necessarily um, selling a whole lot, but when they do come out of the kitchen, the entire restaurant turns their heads. So, for example, we did. Uh, just recently, our uh, swole cakes promotion. So swole cakes, you know, swole meaning like big buff. Yeah. yeah. Um, five pancakes stacked on stacked on top of each other, layered with bacon, eggs, potatoes. Uh, we did another one that was uh, that was bananas, walnuts, peanut butter. I mean, these things come out of the. They're they're about ten inches tall. Um, and so when they, yep. when they fly yep. out of the kitchen, yeah. the entire restaurant, the line, the people standing in line, they, they all turn their heads and, uh, we do some cool stuff with the, the local community and a dollar from each stack goes to wounded warriors, uh, which is kind of a fun thing, but yeah, I mean, back to social media, um, you know, if we can, if we can turn one guest experience into a hundred of their friends seeing an amazing plate of food. Um, like you mentioned, you do that over and over and over again. Um, there is that ripple effect. So we, we definitely are conscious of that and make sure that, um, that we try to achieve that whenever we can. Now you're talking about hooks and I'm a huge believer in hooks in restaurant and hospitality operations. You know, you cannot have too many hooks because this is also free marketing. It's powerful. It's stuff that, you know, it goes beyond the wow factor and now you get the buzz and people are talking about it. So yes, social media is a huge part of that, but people are telling everybody they know you got to check out that 10 stack of waffles and wow, you know, and then I love the fact that you're community minded and that you're giving back to worthy causes also. It's all, it's noble and it's something we should do in this business. And that's, you know, that goes a long way as well. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, we're values driven. So we have six core values that, um, mm -hmm. that we uh, are kind of guided by, I guess. And the team is probably sick of me talking about them, but tell us uh, about it. Yeah. Yeah. So co community is one of them, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And, um, and so, you know, 
when we look at what's our main goal, we really want to be everyone's neighborhood breakfast spot. Um, and so, um, you know, how do we do that? It's engaging, right? It's putting ourselves out there. It's getting our teams to think like members of the community and not just, uh, not just team members. So we get them out on the streets a lot and, um, whether it's in uniform or not, uh, volunteering, helping out, uh, anytime there's something going on, you know, we always, uh, put up our hands, uh, to help out. Um, and so we think that that's, that's our best opportunity to show that we care. Um, and, and, you know, again, uh, there is obviously inherent value in that, and we definitely probably see a return, but it's more the right thing to do, and it gets our, our employees thinking the right way, and um, and I think our customers appreciate that too. So, Well, yeah, the staff are obviously a reflection of the business, and I'm hearing that they're brand ambassadors for Daily Jam wherever they go, and they believe in the concept, they're spreading the word, but they're also doing good at the same time. Yeah, our team members that isn't a customer. <laughs> So they all, they all love our food um, and, and uh, they dig our vibe and, and, you know, it's obviously goes into hiring too. You're hiring the right people, but, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, if we can get uh, our, our employees and our team members to be brand ambassadors, like you mentioned, that's, that's a big deal. Can you tell us what those six core values are? Uh, so the first one is people first. Um, and so that is a, a big, big one for us. Um, you know, when it comes to, uh, an overarching theme within our organization in terms of how we really handle ourselves as people, uh, people first is something we always talk about. So, uh, for, for managers and for myself, it's, it's our, it's our team members and our employees. Uh, and that's first for a reason. We think that if we treat our employees the right way and they're given the right tools to succeed, our customers are going to be happy too. Um, and so the, the people are really our team members, our employees, and our customers. And when I say team members, I'm talking about across the lines, right? So respecting each other. How do we communicate with one another uh, when, we're, when we're on shift or not? Um, how do we uh, you know, show empathy and care about each other? And, and if somebody's having a bad day um, uh, within the restaurant, you know, uh, going up to them and then, then asking them, Hey, is there anything that I can do? Those little things make a big difference. And again, it's not even just a, it's an, or it's not even just an organizational thing. We talk about these core values as being, uh, kind of rules to live by in general, but, and then our customers. So, you know, our customers obviously are, are our driving force and, uh, listening to them, understanding their needs and their wants, um, and, uh, again, showing empathy, empathy is a big word for us. Um, you know, people first is, is, a, is, a, is one of our, our main, uh, values. And so, uh, goes to our franchisees too, you know, as we continue to expand and grow, um, we will be very diligent about the franchisees that we end up deciding to work with. And, and, um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's a, that's a big decision about who's going to be championing the brand across the country. So uh, that's core value number one. Uh, the next one is be remarkable, um, which <clears throat> um, let me, let me pull this up real quick. If you don't mind, I'm just going to pull this Please. up because I've got, uh, it's kind of what it sounds like, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, if you break that down, it's um, how do you get people to remark about, 
their experience. And so we talked a little bit about word of mouth and social media. Um, but uh, in general, you know, it's, it's going above and beyond. So we are fast casual. Um, and there's this connotation with fast casual that the service stops once they pay, right? They, they order first, they pay, and then they get their food. Uh, we like to buck that trend. And uh, once that, that customer um, is seated and, and it gets their food, you know, it's, it's uh, how do we go above and beyond? We offer them a refill on their soda. We offer them a water. Um, is there anything else that I can get, get you guys, you know, while they're, while they're seated? Um, going above and beyond is, is really uh, what that's all about. So um, that is core value number two. The next one is, uh, is own it. Um, and this is really centered around accountability, right? So if, if an employee or if, if somebody uh, does make a mistake, uh, you know, we own it and take accountability and, and have pride in, in our jobs. So that goes for everybody from a manager to, to, uh, to dishwasher, um, you know, really taking pride in, in their job and knowing that, that uh, they have an impact, right? Like everybody has a very solidified role within the restaurant and, um, and, you know, giving them that, that, feeling of, of ownership and um, knowing that uh, is, is, is a big thing for, for everyone in the restaurant. So own it. Um, another piece of that, that own it core value is really celebrating. So when, um, when we do have wins and we beat, you know, let's say last year's sales, you know, let's all celebrate together and we all did a good job. Um, so everybody understands what the goals are. So when we do, you know, put up those numbers, um, there's that sense of ownership and, you know, I did that, you know, it was, it was them. It wasn't, wasn't me, um, sitting across the, the state in a different restaurant. It was that individual team at that four walls. So, um, it's a nice one. Uh, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, the next one is definitely one of my favorites. So it's have fun. Uh, so the, the, the fifth core value have fun, um, is important. Um, we like to have fun. You, you talked about some of our creative menu items. Um, that comes down to having fun, right? It's, it's, uh, you know, what can we do to further our business? What can we try today that might, uh, that might make sense or it might not, uh, in the kitchen or, or elsewhere. And, um, you know, I think if you're going to spend, uh, 40 plus hours a week somewhere, it had better be a, a fun place to, to be. Otherwise that's no way to live. So, uh, we definitely, uh, definitely try to have fun, uh, wherever we can. We talked about community. And then the last one is uh, always be learning. So hmm. continued growth, um, making sure we listen to our people. And we talked about who our people are, team members, uh, employees, customers, um, constantly be listening uh, for feedback and craving it, right? So not hiding from, from potentially things that, that we don't do very well, um, you know, really lifting up the rocks and looking at all the worms and making sure that we see uh, what things we can fix and change and, um, and, 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 you know, consistent growth, right. Just, and that goes for the people and the brand, but, uh, making sure that, uh, everybody is constantly in that learning mindset, which again, you know, isn't just something organizational. I think that we should all be looking to learn as much as we can Definitely. Um, every single day. So. 
That's that's outstanding. Six core values that everyone lives by. Let's, you know, this is a natural segue into your training philosophies and your training plans, but let's start with onboarding a typical new staff or a new team member. Uh, what's that like? And is it shadowing a veteran? Is it so many, you know, shifts before they're actually getting, you know, to deal with a customer? Are they observing? Are they just, you know, diving in and, you know, learning immediately? Like, how does that work? We um, currently do an orientation, which is basically the manager um, sitting down, talking about these core values and explaining the philosophy of the brand, you know, what makes Daily Jam tick, uh, why do customers come back as much as they do, um, just so that they can understand what they're getting into and, and really, you know, how they, how they need to look at their day-to-day tasks. That's before any, any other training begins. Um, the next step is um, really a technical overview. So whether it's a busser, dishwasher, or, or even a manager, um, what are the technical tasks that they're going to have to, to, to know how to do mm-hmm. uh, before they can do their job uh, independently? Um, and then we get into shadowing. So yeah, we're a, we're a big proponent of shadowing, you know, shadowing a veteran, somebody that's been there long term. Uh, we have great retention, especially being on a, on a college campus. Um, not that, not that both of our locations are on college campuses, but, um, our turnover is extremely low. We have employees, hourly employees that have been with us for five, six years. Um, and so, you know, really our goal with training is really to give them every tool to succeed. Uh, there's nothing worse than being undertrained as an employee. <laughs> and that goes for the manager who's, who's supervising them too. So, mm-hmm. uh, but that feeling of confidence and trust you know, making sure that our employees trust each other. Um, So before we deploy somebody independently, uh, we need to make sure that we know that the other employees, the veterans can trust them to do their job so they don't have to think about it. Um, And so, yeah, it's a shadowing process. We use uh, a lot of manuals and and training guidelines uh, for the employees so they know, hey, and it's going to be a six-day training. This is what you're going to cover each day. Um, There's notes being taken. There's a review at the end of every day. Uh, what they learned, uh, what they need to to focus on the next the next day, um, and then they're they're on their own. And you know, once they're on their own, it's not just hey, <laughs> we'll see you guys later. It's it's an evaluation after a week or so. And um, if there's things that we need to recover, um, then we will. We also are are big on um, consistent uh, continued education. So it's not like a formal you know uh, continued education program, but uh, we do revisit, um, gather everybody, whether it's, you know, let's just say the busser team um, and revisit the entire training, uh, training guidelines. So what are the things that we should be doing? What are the standards as a brand? Uh, and that just keeps, keeps us consistent. You know, after time, um, bad habits can form. And so just making sure we flush those out uh, as they come up uh, is kind of the way that we handle it. I've always been a huge believer in, well, the training piece goes without saying, but having a daily pre-shift, even if it's just three to five minutes and setting the stage for the day to come and what we want our guests to leave with and how we want to touch each guest in a personal way. And then there's the suggestive selling piece, not just being an order taker, but being a, well, 
brand ambassador. Again, it's like people that work in a particular restaurant are, you know, the experts and a guest might be the very first time visitor walking through the door. They don't know the first thing about what they're going to enjoy. So it's really superior service to make suggestions. Definitely. <clears throat> yeah. And so, you know, what I didn't mention is menu test and yeah. it's something that just recently we're really enforcing uh, to the point that, um, I mean, I don't care if you're in the back of the house uh, and you're not cooking food, if you're a dishwasher uh, or if you're a manager, you need to know every single ingredient in every single dish. Is this dish gluten-free? Can it be made gluten-free? Um, not just gluten-free, but gluten-free, dairy-free, uh, plant-based vegan. Um, all of that stuff needs to be completely uh, solidified in their minds to the point where they don't even need to think about it. And so the menu test is a big deal. Yeah, for sure. And especially for us being fast casual, where full service, you have a, a waitress and a waiter, um, and they're responsible for communicating with the guests. For us, for the most part, our bussers are the ones who are getting grabbed uh, or, or getting waved down by a guest um, because they have a question or they have <clears throat> um, a concern about something that might be in their dish. And so they need to be probably even more. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a different philosophy and something that we've identified being fast casual uh, in our system uh, that we need to make sure that, especially with the dietary, uh, <clears throat> the dietary um, shift, I guess, uh, that the more conscious eaters, um, you know, we need to make sure that, uh, that we're handling those properly. That's great. I've always, yeah. I mean, bussers shouldn't just be seen and not heard. I mean, they should interact with the customer. They should be well-trained, knowledgeable. And, you know, it, it's always a pet peeve when you go out to a restaurant and you ask a question and you hear, oh, I don't know. I've got to, let me go check for you. Or I got to go ask my manager. It's a reflection on that restaurant. It's a reflection on the way they approach the business. And I'm hearing that, you know, everybody that interacts with a customer and even in the back of the house, everyone is knowledgeable because people are cross-trained and people may move up in the organization and they're in a better position to, you know, deliver the best experience for the customer. That's fantastic. Exactly right. Yep. And, you know, it's, just, it's a unique quality of our restaurant, I think. Um, again, being fast casual, it's a lot more free flowing um, than a traditional full service restaurant. So, so you have to be that way. And, you know, I think uh, at the end of the, at, at the end of the day, you know, when we when we look at the labor market, uh, we really do. You brought up cross training. We try to, to give people uh, the ability to uh, learn new roles or expand into new roles. Um, but everybody is definitely held to a certain standard when it comes to understanding and knowing the restaurant. So um, it's a unique quality of ours, I think. It sounds like you're in an enviable position because you did mention you have very low turnover. And of course, restaurants across the country are really struggling with that labor issue right now. It's so hard to find, keep, motivate, you know, a great staff. And turnover in this industry, unfortunately, is, is rampant. So you're doing all the right things. And it certainly helps to be, you know, close to a major college campus because there's always, you know, kids that are looking for jobs. This sounds like a fun place. You talked about that. Let's talk about um, expansion plans. Now, you are franchising. Um, you do have a franchisable model here. And you're maintaining company-owned stores as well as selling franchises? Or how's that working? Correct. Yeah. So we're going to remain uh, or, or keep our two corporately owned locations. Mm -hmm. And uh, the goal with that is training R&D, keeping in touch with the customers. 
I don't think you can truly run a franchise organization without having your own restaurants. Um, and so, so yeah, when we look at growth, uh, we are really excited about 2020. So um, it's been in the making for a long time. We did the rebrand in February of last year um, of 2019. And uh, the goal behind that was obviously for growth. And right. so uh, as we got to Q3, Q4 of 2019, uh, we, we really put our foot on the gas, um, started to have some really good conversations with some, some really strong groups across the country, um, targeting three different areas across the, the U S. So obviously Arizona, um, and the Southwest. Um, so we're also looking at Denver, um, and Texas and the Midwest, um, for, uh, a few reasons, but we do think that the real estate market there in terms of looking at other college campuses as a, yes, uh, a yes. case study, you know, those, those big 10 schools, uh, they could definitely have a huge impact, um, for daily gems growth. Um, and then also Florida and the South. So, um, we're currently, um, making an announcement next week, but we just signed a deal for the entire state of Michigan. Uh, which is going to be huge for us. We look at Ann Arbor and we look at other, even Detroit, um, other uh, other cities in that market. Uh, we think that that's going to be a huge market for us long-term uh, with a really strong group. Uh, they definitely know what they're doing. Right. Um, right. Mm -hmm. And then uh, have conversations going in, in, in a few other markets and, and some are further along than others. But uh, now that we're past the rebrand and, we have uh, a few deals under our belt. Um, we're really excited to get, uh, you know, showcase what we've really been fine tuning the last few years uh, with this model, our team, our philosophy, and expanding it across the country. So, so the key word that comes to mind with any restaurant, but more so with a franchise model, is systems. So everything has to be dialed and duplicatable and not deviated from because these are really best practices. So it must have taken quite a while to sort of refine, systemize every aspect of the business and then make sure that those are followed with each franchisee. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I can. Yeah, we um, we uh, so we we purchased the restaurant from the original owners in 2016, April of 2016, mm -hmm. and have been really methodical about making sure that we were ready for growth. Um, we know me being involved with the Hall of Brands and some of those larger legacy concepts. Um, Z Growth, which I haven't mentioned, so Z Growth is a private equity firm that uh, came in. Uh, November of 2018, um, and they are uh, a kind of a niche private equity firm that's solely focused on franchise companies. Um, their chairman and their <clears throat> management team has ex a lot of experience growing uh, small concepts via franchising into larger concepts in a lot of different industries. So not not just restaurants. Um, they've definitely done restaurants, but um, real estate, uh, they've done, uh, storage and moving. Um, so their experience combined with mine, maybe more hyper-focused restaurant experience on the franchise yeah. side, Right. we've taken our time. <laughs> uh, so it's been a few years now of, uh, getting our ducks in a row, I guess is the best way to put it and making sure that we do have a strong system because we've, we've all seen what can happen if you grow too quickly, uh, or if you grow without being ready. Um, 
And so I think that uh, it's definitely unique to have that kind of experience with a two unit breakfast concept or a restaurant in general. Um, and you would expect a certain amount of prior experience from a potential operator. Is that correct? Yeah. So we're, we're, so we're looking for, um, for franchisees ideally with restaurant experience. Um, you know, I think when I say ideally, um, it can be in a, a lot of different capacities, right? <clears throat> um, does, they don't necessarily have to have ownership experience. Um, we have a pretty extensive training program or very extensive training program uh, with regards to the ownership uh, uh, responsibilities uh, and the day-to-day. But, um, but yeah, we, we ideally would like to see restaurant experience uh, in some capacity. We're looking for multi-unit franchise operators, as most people are. Sure. Uh, people who have existing restaurants already, um, that is the ideal situation. Um, but, you know, we're not exclusively going to hold, um, people to, you know, doing three, five units all at once, knowing that we are still a small concert. Do they spend time training in the corporate stores? Yeah. Yeah. So the training process for us is, um, is basically they come out to Arizona within 60 days of their opening date. Um, and we spend, uh, six to eight weeks, um, going through every part of the business. So it's, it's about a week in the classroom and, uh, and then another, uh, five, six, seven weeks, uh, depending on how it goes, um, in the restaurant. And, um, they have to pass training obviously to, to open their restaurant. And, and so, but they leave here with, with everything that they would possibly need to know. They basically end up running one of our corporate locations for at least a couple of weeks. Do you require that they own the real estate or a leasehold's okay? Yep. Yep. Let's shift gears a second. Uh, it just triggered a thought. I want to go back to your menu because you're also doing specialty cocktails. Does it go beyond the traditional mimosas and Bloody Marys? You got some really creative stuff going on as well? Uh, yeah. I mean, here and there. So we have a lot more than just champagne and, you know, let's just say vodka for Bloody Marys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a lot of fun back there. Um, the bar is a central piece of our restaurant in terms of design. It sits right in the middle of every restaurant. Uh, we do indoor outdoor seating and yeah. with windows nice. that roll up, obviously not mm-hmm. for every climate, but, sure. um, that environment really opens up the space. Uh, we make sure that our, we're hiring the right people to be behind the bar, uh, friendly, um, they, they interact well, engage well. Um, but the bar is a very difficult, uh, and it needs to be a senior uh, team member because you're pumping everything from smoothies to coffee to specialty cocktails out of that one spot. So, um, so yeah, you know, we do do a lot of different creative things. We have a lot more than just, um, just beer and wine. Um, we do, um, some things with our coffee. We're doing a kind of an Irish coffee series special right now, uh, with the winter down here. Um, and even our bloody Marys though, we've got five different kinds, all are a little bit creative, all use different types of liquor. Uh, and then our mimosas, we've got five different ones as well. So, um, it's, it's definitely a fun thing and and something that people can get a little bit more creative with. On the food side, we talked about 
keeping the existing menu intact, does that mean that it never changes? Do you add things from time to time? Do you have off the menu specials just to keep, you know, your kitchen crews creative? How does that work? Yeah, so we do, uh, we're almost constantly running LTOs, um, which limited time offerings. Uh, we usually like to run those between 30 and 45 days. Uh, for example, we just launched January 1, uh, something we're calling a New Year, New Us, uh, New Year, New Jam uh, special uh, for plant-based menu items, mm. uh, which is something we've never done. Um, and uh, we're testing it out to see if, if there's a response in the market for it. Um, basically, <clears throat> running through them, there's a garden patty melt, which is uh, a plant-based quinoa burger. Uh, with vegan mozzarella style cheese, um, caramelized onions uh, on sourdough. Uh, it's fantastic. I was really skeptical. I'm not necessarily plant-based myself, but I tried it out and was like, yes, we're doing this and yeah, it's going to be on yeah. the menu someday. Yeah. Um, and then we have a saute, which our sautés are basically scrambles. Um, so um, a mixture of eggs, potatoes, mm -hmm. uh, all tossed in a skillet together. Um, and that one is with a soy, uh, soy chorizo, uh, from Morningstar foods. All of our, all of this entire LTO was partnered with Morningstar foods, um, who is definitely one of the leaders in, in that space. Um, and then we did an acai smoothie, um, which, uh, we've never done acai in the restaurants, which is definitely something that makes new perfect for us. sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And it's, okay. you know, it's a, it's a buzzword for sure, but it's, it's yeah. a fantastic drink and something that. Um, already just in the first couple of days, we're seeing some tremendous response from it. Um, and then, uh, the last one is a, an avocado toast with the uh, soy chorizo as well. Um, so we're, uh, we're excited about it and it's definitely something fun. Um, and when we go back to LTOs, we like the creative aspect of it. I don't think we shy away from wanting to try new things and kind of buck the trend a little bit. Um, and so, um, we use it as a way for our team members to stay engaged. Uh, we're constantly talking about, you know, LTOs three, four, five months from now. Um, and uh, we use a lot of different things. Our waffles, for example, are something that we use quite a bit in the, in the, winters, uh, the winter months. December, we ran our gingerbread waffle, which, which is uh, it's really good. And uh, yeah. And, uh, and then before that, it was our pumpkin waffle. So, mm -hmm. you know, we do, we do things, um, like I said, constantly running something new and uh, kind of runs right alongside our menu. And then you never know if, if one of them takes off, yeah. uh, we end up putting it on the menu. So a good example of that is we did uh, an LTO last summer, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe spring, um, was our breakfast tacos. So we launched uh, what was called Eddie's Breakfast Tacos. Eddie's, Eddie's one of our kitchen managers. So he came up with the idea. He deserves the credit. I uh, called him Eddie's Breakfast Tacos, and uh, they're phenomenal. It's, it's uh, scrambled eggs, black bean salsa that we do in-house, um, uh, cheese, uh, chipotle sauce, and um, come out on a little taco tray. So it's something unique. They took off. Um, during the LTO. And so we were like, these need to be on the menu. So they're permanently on the menu now. Mm -hmm. But uh, other than that, you know, we, we haven't really reduced the size of our menu or taken things off um, uh, recently. I think that there's probably room to do that in the next 12 months, but um, we have a really good uh, consistent P-Mix 
in terms of there's not a lot of things that are are you know just on the menu for ink you know there's there's they all sell they all are are playing into a different audience uh and so um that's one thing that i think we have uh that's going for us that's a little different than other concepts you know one of the things that really strikes me you said that you're a finance guy you're into the numbers and i can imagine when you design this menu um i do quite a bit of coaching one-on-one with different restaurants and i've identified the fact that so many restaurants out there put a menu together without three key things in mind. You need variety, appeal to the customer, but most of all, it needs to be profitable. And the product mix is, is a key part of this exercise, but I've identified the fact that so many restaurants out there in different categories, whether we're talking about the appetizer starter category, the entree category, the dessert category, there's a huge profit spread difference in those different items in these categories. And when we cost out the menu, if they haven't already done so, and then you, you know, put six months of product mix data behind it and you quickly see that in the weirdest situation, it's like more frequently than not, the lowest profit items are the biggest sellers. And every time you're selling A versus B, you're leaving so much money on the table. And this is like a eureka moment when I sit down with someone and I say, you know what, over the last six months, you just lost a potential $180,000 worth of you know, profit because the spread is so different. It's, it's really frightening. Yeah. Have you addressed that when you designed the menu or was it done when you acquired this existing menu? It's been something in the last 18 months that we've really put a focus on. Uh, I think the issue that I think the issue that a lot of mom and pop restaurants or not mom and pop, but one off restaurants struggle with is to to do it the right way with technology. It is expensive um, in terms of doing your cost analysis and your cost of goods reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, we're still doing it manually. Maybe that's me because I like the control, but. Yeah. Uh, we do all of our spreadsheets uh, manually um, in terms of inventory, all of our costing. Um, it's basically a, a spreadsheet that uses all of our order guides from our distributors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we update that pricing every week. So that pricing automatically shifts from our distributors into the spreadsheet. The spreadsheet updates every single menu item based on portion size. And so we know if avocados, for example, which just happened, yeah. um, skyrocket, we right, know right. what menu items that's affecting. Okay, let's mm-hmm. take down those marketing pieces for those items yes. and let's shift it over to this lower cost item. Smart. Um, so, so that's really you know how we use it. And it, I just think it's difficult for people to sit down and take the time necessary because it is a long and lengthy process. But yes. once you do it and you understand it, it is eye-opening. You know, for us, um, there were definitely some menu items that we were like, okay, we need to either adjust price or, or look at moving it somewhere else on the menu. Um, because placement does have a, a factor too, um, where it is and, and how many customers are seeing it. But, um, but yeah, we do a lot of numbers. We, we, you know, one of our, our, um, overall, you know, management, I guess, philosophies is we're results driven. You know, at the end of the day, the numbers uh, tell the story, and um, and so we look at a lot of numbers. We have a weekly report that spits out uh, probably more than than most managers are looking at uh, in other restaurants um, in terms of our labor breakdowns, um, and we leverage as much technology as we can for that um, in terms of scheduling platforms and stuff, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's restaurants are, are, are difficult businesses to run and, um, you need to have grit. Uh, you need to be able to sit down and, 
and crunch through it. So fortitude. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fortitude for sure. Well, again, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to use the word mom and pop. And like we're talking about independent operators, whether they have one right. location or two or three, I call this the business of a thousand details, you know, because there's so mm-hmm. many moving pieces. And the inventory process really is or can be onerous. And it's just one more of those details. But there's so many restaurants out there that don't take a regular inventory, don't figure out what their true food and beverage costs are, don't monitor labor costs. And they're running businesses at their peril. You know, not taking inventory is kind of like leaving, you know, $100 bills all throughout your walk-in. And whoever walks in there just grabs one. You know, it's like, you don't know. Well, and it's funny too. I always, I talk to our distributors quite a bit and, you know, they get the question a lot about price. Like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, whatever it is, I'm, I'm an independent operator and I go to the distributor. Hey, I need, I need you guys to come down on price. And, you know, we sit down and talk about it. It's, it's the same thing. It's, it's their, the easy way to reduce their, their purchasing is by monitoring how they do their business inside the restaurant. It's, it's less about, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are there are instances where there's there's room, but um, it, uh, it it really is more of an internal discussion than it is uh, going and asking for a handout. But yeah, I think it's critical and it's foundational to running an effective and a strong, profitable operation. You got to do this. So pay attention, people. If you're not taking inventory and monitoring your costs, start doing so now. Control yeah. too. You know, we just recently went to one standard. Uh, utensil for uh, measuring on the line. So um, all of our build cards now are referencing one tool, not quarter cup here, half cup here. It is a, it's a two ounce, basically a two ounce scoop. And so everything is done with that. There's no, there's no variance. There's no, uh, uh, which one is it today? It's, it's one standard scoop. And we saw portion control affect our cost of goods immediately. Definitely. Um, and so we've been able to have some some really good gains just in the last six months uh, with that change. That's another key learning. And I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that because different employees have a different hand, you know, different, not only the size of their hand when they're portioning out ingredients, but if they're not paying attention, you know, one extra ingredient when it's, when the recipe calls for this, there has to be that consistent standard. And again, that is a huge impact on your cost of goods if you're not standardizing those portions. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Last question. Let's talk about recognition and rewards. It sounds like you got a great team. You got longevity and low turnover. What type of recognition do you, you know, do you um, offer in, in the different stores to recognize employees and make them feel like they're part of the team and that you appreciate their contributions? Yeah, I think, um, so we don't do uh, like the traditional employee of the month or anything like that. We, we actually just, and you know, again, this is maybe just me, but we went to uh, an OKR system uh, the beginning of this uh, beginning of the summer, basically um, OKR is objective key results. Um, basically it's, it's uh, John Doerr um, started it uh, and championed it with Google uh, much bigger organizations than we are. But when I read their book, about it, it really gave gave me uh, insight into how to give people that um, that feeling of um, maybe not respect, but that everybody understands what they're working on and what their goals are and what they're trying to achieve. And so, uh, basically, the way it works is it's a top down approach. Uh, we have company wide goals, objectives, 
uh, underneath each objective is a key result um, that ties directly to that performance and it's all measurable. Um, and so when we evaluate these, it's top down. So, you know, everybody has to tie in with, uh, with the top level objective and it goes to the managers and then the managers give it out to their um, expo, their, their runners, their bussers. So everybody's working on one thing that is kind of, kind of their own focus. Um, and if everybody accomplishes their goal, the company-wide goals should really, should really not be an issue. And so uh, when, when we talk about recognition and rewards, uh, we go on quarterly review processes and we do our OKRs every quarter. Mm-hmm. And uh, the manager will sit down with that employee and they'll go through their individual goals. Did they hit them? Did they not? What were the issues? Um, you know, are there things that we could do better to make you achieve your goals next time? Um, those little things where it's more about communication than it is about, um, Hey, here's a gift card, right? You know, we're, we're, we're much less, you know, going back to retention, um, we're much less focused on bonuses and carrots as we are, um, trying to take pride in their work, um, which I think is one reason that we've been able to sustain um relatively low turnover uh, in our restaurants and so um the okr system is just a way for people to understand what they should be working on and what they should be focusing on and how their work fits into the puzzle right there's a lot of moving parts with a restaurant um it can get uh, very uh, confusing and hairy a lot of times and um, with a simple system like the okrs they're able to understand right away uh, how their work impacts the business every single day. Fantastic. How can uh, the audience follow you on your social media? Do you want to throw out a couple of handles here and I'll include it in the show notes as well as in this recording? Yeah. Daily Jams is at Eat Daily Jam. Um, and we're on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, myself personally, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Barrick Blackwell, B E R E K K. B-L-A-C-K-W-E-L-L. Awesome. Fantastic. Website is mydailyjam.com. And um, for any franchising info, dailyjamfranchising.com um, has uh, just about everything you need. That's great. Daily Jam Franchising. I'm going to include all this because you never know. There's probably an operator out there listening to this podcast who might be interested in this hot, fast-growing concept. Barrick, it has been my pleasure hosting you uh, on the podcast. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, folks, and we will see you in the next episode. Guys, like I said, I love talking to dynamic operators that have really great concepts and building powerful brands, because that's really what it's all about. Why else would you be in this business if you're not going to build a brand? One of the most important things that we talked about was the importance of inventory and knowing your true costs. But what's also important is menu design, and they've clearly got that dialed at Daily Jam. But if you listen to the episode, we talked about how so many operators out there are putting menus together that just aren't maximizing their profitability. And that's something that I've specialized in for the last couple of years. I really love working one-on-one with operators and costing out their menu. And if they have already costed out their menu, figuring out you know the volume of sales and what the profit spread difference is. And what I'm finding is the lowest profit items on a menu are usually 
usually the biggest sellers, which is really, really a challenge in your business. And sometimes the spread in appetizers, you could be losing 3 to $5 in potential profit or even more by selling a lower profit appetizer. On the entree side, it's even scarier. I'm seeing $7, $10, $12, $15 difference when the lower profit items are selling that you're leaving on the table versus the higher profit items. So this is a real challenge, okay, for a lot of operators. But again, we can figure this out and we can redesign a menu for maximum profitability that'll really print money and put it in your bank account. So if this intrigues you, reach out to me. Roger, R-O-G-E-R at restaurantrockstars.com. I offer a 30-minute consultation, absolutely complimentary, no charge. I just love talking shop. And we can discuss your pain points and challenges in your restaurant. So once again, thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other operators and hospitality professionals find us. And once again, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.